semi-final for England. Another chance to replace the ghosts of history with heroes of the here and now. Hopes high, that dreaded expectation is there as well. So is the pressure for the players of England and Denmark. Preparations complete. My name's Nick Spooner. I'm an organiser, I'm a broadcaster with Hope Not Hate. This is a project that's been devised, produced, written and edited with Jake Pace-Laurie, our producer here at Hope Not Hate. Welcome to our series, Metapolitics. It's September 2021. Home Not Hate Charitable Trust, we've just put out Heroes of the Terraces, a new publication which looks at those who've used football to take a stand against division and hate, both in the game and in society as well. Heroes of the Terraces tells the stories of those clubs that have anti-fascism running right through their DNA, and it shows that when fascist regimes have tried to use football to win support for their murderous agendas, players and supporters, often at huge personal risk to themselves, have refused to obey. Football is very, very important when it comes to the issue of metapolitics. It's the most popular sport in the world, with a global estimated following of around 4 billion people. It has the power to unite irrespective of age, ethnicity, gender or religion. It can be played anywhere, by anyone, with relative ease. And it has a huge national and global financial clout. All of that means there's a hell of a lot at stake here. There are two souls of football on the one hand, you have the game based on intrinsic tribalism, often nationalism, dividing communities and pitting people in violent competition with one another. On the other hand, you have the beautiful game, elevating athleticism, sportsmanship and team playing, uniting people from Egypt to Ireland. At its best, it is poetry. But it's Trippier who'll cross and it's Luke Shaw! It's the start of dreams! Wedgwood wasn't just a man with a passion for mating things and for selling things. He was also consumed with a passion for social justice. Am I not a man and a brother? The image of a black man kneeling in chains was the symbol of the British abolitionist movement during the 18th and 19th centuries, designed by the potter and abolitionist Josiah Wedgwood. Fast forward to the civil rights movement, and we see the iconic image of Martin Luther King Jr. taking the knee to lead marches in prayer whilst on the journey from Selma to Montgomery. I am not long because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long? Not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So when NFL player Colin Kaepernick began kneeling on the sidelines at games during the US National Anthem in 2016, he was tapping into a long history of the display used in protest against injustice. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refusing to stand during the national anthem again. This time, he took a knee right behind hundreds of service members being honored on Military Appreciation Night. The San Francisco 49ers quarterback was protesting against police brutality and racism in the aftermath of a spate of police-involved deaths of black Americans, including Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Lacan McDonald, Tamir Rice, 
and Sandra Blunt. The reaction across the Atlantic to Kaepernick's protest was extremely hostile, and in much the same way, when the English football team began taking the knee in protest against systemic racism here in the UK, so much of their character and ability began being called into question by right-wing politicians, right-wing talking heads and far-right movements and individuals, poisoning the national conversation, distracting from the issue at hand and turning football into a cultural battleground. I just don't support, you know, people participating in, you know, that type of gesture, gesture politics to a certain extent as well. This didn't just come from anywhere, it came from a conflicted game with a traumatic history. I spoke to three people who are involved in anti-racist activism in different ways to look at the state of play when it comes to equalities in football and how to push back against racism in and around the game. All three of them love the sport. My name is Laurent Velleman. I'm the political organiser for Hope Not Hate, a huge football fan. My first ever match was after my fifth birthday. I've been in love with football ever since. Being there in person, there's just nothing that can replicate that. My dad was born in Ells Court area, so his local clubs would have been QPR, Fulham, Chelsea. But he became an Arsenal fan because he went to a game just before the Jewish High Holy Days, Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. There was a specific article in the program, in the Arsenal program, wishing the Jewish fans a, a happy New Year, New Year. And he hadn't seen that in other grounds. For him, you know, he felt therefore at home at this ground compared to some of the other grounds locally. And, and any version of that kind of outward showing of belief in, in inequality and inclusion is so important for football but unfortunately despite some great strides that have been made over you know recent decades there's clearly still a long way to go there's clearly still clubs that prioritize their financial standing over fighting for the important causes there are players that don't want to take positions on things because they want to cultivate their brand over overtaking those positions we're still in a situation where there's no footballer in the top division in Britain who's openly uh, LGBT that's in the men's game and you can see a blueprint for how kind of normalized LGBT inclusion is in the women's game so many players in the Team GB squad in the Olympics or the England squad or up and down the kind of football pyramid are openly LGBT and fans are very positive and, and supportive of that both you know during matches and just generally so so there's clearly blueprints for how things can improve uh, unfortunately, though, there is still a long way to go. Laurent's perspective was bold and clear. The women's game is so much further ahead than the men's game on questions of LGBT rights. There's a model there, I think, for how inclusion can be better incorporated into the game. Next, I spoke to Shaista Aziz, who recently gained a lot of attention for an article she wrote on her relationship to football. Hi, I'm Shaista Aziz. I'm a journalist, writer and anti-racism campaigner. I don't actually support a football team, believe it or not. And the reason for that is I fell out of love of the beautiful game when the Premier League was set up. Despite Shyster's love of the game, she feels, like Laron too, that something isn't quite right with the world of football. It's just all about money, money, money. In spite of that, Shyster has had a fantastic set of experiences with football. She told me this lovely story of when she first started supporting a football club. So I remember this bloke came round to concrete over our front garden and he it was it was a uh, one of the FA Cups and he was a massive Everton fan so he kept popping off uh, to go and watch the game and in the end my dad was like mate just down your tools just go inside have a curry and go chill out with us and watch the football 
by the end of that FA Cup, I was an Everton fan because the guy was so passionate. And I remember that really vividly. And so I was, I did follow Everton for a number of years. This ability to bring people together gives Shyster a real sense of hope for the future of football. The politics of liberation and justice and creating a decent society. I've always associated that with football as well. People might be surprised to hear that because there's a lot of ugliness that comes with, with you know, football, sadly. I don't, I don't believe the ugliness is to do with football myself. I think it's to do with white men in particular. From a young age, I did understand that, you know, football belongs to all of us, particularly to working class people. I refused to do it, so I used to just go along to these games and there would be times when I'd be really terrified but I still go so I wrote this piece uh, which was reflecting all of this and I got a really powerful response and it wasn't just from one group of people it was from a massive swathe of people they all were tweeting at me and sending me private messages and things like that and I thought I, I, I genuinely believe only football can do that only football can bring those connections through but lots of people said that this is the country I want to believe in and this is the type of country I, I want us to want, want all of us to create and so that's really lovely it genuinely is the thing is if we want to create that vision then we have to get off our backsides all of us shyster is reassuringly energized she wants action now here are a few of her demands for change so i think there's a pushback taking place and um i think it's an organic pushback but it will grow what i would really like this moment to be about is a building a broad anti-racism movement we don't have one in this country we urgently need one b is getting the football authorities to understand that you are completely and totally out of touch with the fans you are out of touch with the people who make this sport what it is including the players for both Shyster and Leron, the problem of diversity comes up again and again, and each time it's linked to an increasingly commercialised game where financial questions dictate the culture of the sport. Taking this into consideration, I spoke with Charlie Hyman, the CEO of Bloomsbury Football, about what he's doing to tackle racism and inequality at the sharp end. The two key things that I wanted to tackle were one, that the quality of what was being provided across the board was really, really poor. So like flat footballs, really bad pitches, unqualified coaches, and there just wasn't really a reason why um, it was so backward. And all these young people were getting such a poor experience playing sport. And the second thing was that, especially in London, but also in Nottingham, where I went to university, children and young people were being priced out of playing. Um, a lot of that was the lack of facilities, meaning that higher prices, which was then passed on to these families, um, but also the rising price of kind of kit and buying new football boots all the time. So lots of children essentially grew up without being given the opportunity to play regular sport, which I thought was terrible. So it was essentially a case of matching up those two. Can I provide something that's amazingly high quality, the best coaches, the best pitches, but also make sure that it's accessible to every single young person no matter their background. Um, and that's kind of what we set out to do. Started with four children on a cold Thursday night down in Camden Town. Uh, I remember finishing the session and thought, wow, how am I going to get any more kids here for next week? When he had four this week, maybe we won't get any next week. Um, but managed to kind of pick up, build up a group, open the second session and have, have grown out from there um, with a lot of hard work over the last three years to where we are today, uh, where we work with a few thousand children every week um, across a few different boroughs in London and hopefully improve young people's lives for the better using the power of football. This inspirational story doesn't just mean that working class kids have more access, it produces a football culture that's inclusive.
the fact that we are able to remove the barriers to access means that we bring together people from a huge range of backgrounds. My experience in London previously was that there were kind of clubs for children who maybe went to private school, clubs for children who couldn't afford the fees that they were paying. And therefore, from an early age, you're starting to break up society based on their family's wealth, essentially. Or, for example, the language they speak or the school they go to. Um, so by removing all the barriers to access um, and allowing children from different backgrounds that look different, that speak differently, um, that have different parents and financial backgrounds, that for us is massively important. And those children then grow up with the experience of meeting and speaking to children from completely other different backgrounds. And for us, like that is where all the issues start is around lack of education. So by enabling these children to grow up with empathy for others and empathy for difference, we feel like that's the best thing we can do. It's not short term, it's not even medium term, it's working with a seven or eight year old now, but hopefully when they're a young adult and, and an adult, they will understand, oh, I remember I've spoken to children from all different backgrounds, young people, oh, you know what? We're actually very similar. It's just that they look slightly different, but that isn't an issue and that doesn't matter to me because I understand um, how they feel and, and what it's like to, to be different through growing up with them playing football together. But it is difficult to measure the success of a project like this. So we are actually working um, on what we have called a theory of change. So essentially trying to measure the return on investment from a social perspective. So for example, if we imagine Bloomsbury is kind of this box and in the box is all the amazing football sessions and programs we run. Well, in one side goes our funding. So let's say one pound. What do we actually get out the other side? So we work with all these children and we improve their health okay great how much money does that save the nhs 20 years down the line very hard to quantify but that's essentially kind of the job of the organization is to bring a positive return investment on um, the money that goes in to to bring a essentially a better society for everyone to live in out the other side um in terms of kind of the more qualitative side of things we obviously speak to the parents and families all the time there's so many amazing stories both of kind of the children themselves who've gone and spoken to people who go to the school next to them but they would never have met otherwise or live on the road next to them they didn't even know that there was someone the same age who also liked football um and beyond the children actually is the families as well which is sometimes forgotten about but obviously all these parents bring their 10 year old child to this football session and actually the parents then start speaking to others and meeting people from different backgrounds and the nature of central london is that you have such a diverse mix so you will have a parent who's very wealthy in a corporate job coming and meeting someone who might be on universal credit and their child's on free school meals and they would never usually mix in any other context but actually they spend an hour on a saturday morning having a conversation about their children, the football, their schools, because they've met through the medium of football. Um, and that is, is brilliant and, and priceless. 
with all of this developing quite nicely. How can this inner city project spread out to the towns and other places where some of the most entrenched prejudices have taken root? So we've actually sat down and said, look, for us to make the biggest impact across grassroots sport, we need to look externally, not just internally. There's only so much we as an organisation can do. And actually, if we want to make the biggest impact we can with our time, we need to use some of that time to do more advocacy and to help other organisations and clubs do what we're doing. As we've heard from our three great podcast guests, anti-fascists have made significant progress in righting the wrongs and injustices within the game. But this is a struggle that's destined to continue. Far-right forces are at play within supporter bases around the world, and it's incumbent on anti-fascist football fans to demand action from their clubs. It's clear from the Euros and the events in Hungary that racism is a part of the game that's lingered, and the importance of taking the knee remains. Shyster, Charlie and Leron have given me three perspectives on how to tackle racism and win back the sport for all. Thanks for listening.